Cause all the people I truly serve Salmons, this is Year Zero. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing many of you to Drew of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. Drew is a recovering addict. We talk a lot about his addiction and the things he went through and get really into the philosophy of being clean and just living a healthier life. And we both share some stories and get pretty vulnerable here, but I think there's a lot in, in this that you'll really appreciate as always, ryanbunting.com for all of your graphic design needs. That's ryanbunting.com. Ryan Bunting is a great anarcho-capitalist and libertarian. He's also a great graphic designer. He designed my podcast logo and Pete Quinone's podcast logo from Free Man Beyond the Wall. So go to ryanbunting.com for all of your graphic design needs. And while you're there, pick up a copy of his book, Project Manicure. As always, thank you, Tom Burton, for the music. If you know anyone looking for a virtual assistant or someone to do their administrative work, yet they don't need to hire full-time, contact me, TommySalmons at gmail.com. My wife is a virtual assistant, and I am assisting her in her endeavors in expanding her business. So get in touch with me, TommySalmons at gmail.com, if you or anyone you know needs an administrator that can do QuickBooks, paychecks, email uh, services, scheduling, transcription, all that good administrative work that bogs down your day and keeps you from doing the things that actually make you money. That's TommySalmons at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. And I am here with Drew of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. What's, What's going up, on, man? man? Not much, man. I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm glad we finally made it happen, man. Yeah, I am too. Been a work in progress. Yeah. It's like yes. everything else while I'm out here in this fucking truck. <laughs> if I haven't said it before, I'll say it again. I fucking hate this goddamn job. <laughs> Been doing this shit fucking too damn long. I guess if it was good, they wouldn't need to pay us, right? Like, if it was fun? Yeah, I guess, that's, man. That's the bitch of it, That's what my dad always said. I'd ask him, how's work? Well, they wouldn't call it work if it were fun. Right. It's kind of part of it, man. Part, part of the deal is, you know, some days, man, I go to work, I'm like, shit, I should have went to college. <laughs> Those college loans ain't looking so bad now, man. That might have been, been a worthwhile endeavor. Might have been a hell of a trade-off. Yeah. yeah, fuck. Yeah, I fucking hated school though. I was horrible at it. I was good at it. I was horrible at being there. I was great at passing. I fucking, you know. I mean, I breezed by with a B average and didn't try to do anything except cause trouble. 
So right. But you wrote this really good article, so I kind of wanted to start there. You you had uh, had it published at the Libertarian Institute, which I'm a part of. Hello, guys. Right on, man. Represent Libertarian Institute. I need to give me some shirts. I need to give me yeah, some Libertarian do. Institute shirts. I haven't even thought about that. I, I would buy a Year Zero shirt. I would. I'm going to make some. I'm, I am going to make some. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't figured out exactly how I'm going to do it, What? how I'm going to design it, but I am going to make some. I have uh, I have some interesting ideas for for doing. Uh, I might even use this uh, the logo that, that Ryan made up for me. This because uh, it pisses so many people off. I like the fact that it pisses so many people off. <laughs> but <clears throat> but yeah, let's get into this. Uh, let's get into this article. Some I, I really really enjoyed it. I, I thought the way you approached the subject of addiction was unique because you've been there. And if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about that some as well. But. But um, you started off talking about the the 12-step process. So walk us through that process. Those of us that haven't been through it, aren't familiar with it, walk us through that process the way you did in that article. I thought it was really well, you know, articulated. Okay, so um, first off and foremost, we have our first step. And that is, uh, came to believe that we were alcoholic or addict, depending on what fellowship you're in, and that your life had become unmanageable. So for a lot of us who come in the rooms, crawl in the rooms rather, that isn't a hard leap for us to take. We pretty much knew shit was unmanageable when we were, you know, carpet surfing, you know, smoking grains of rice or pieces of drywall thinking it was crack, you know. Like it's, it's not hard to make that leap to say, you know what, things aren't, aren't very manageable in my life right now. Um, and the next one, I'm going to have to, Give me just a moment here, man. I want to pull it up. Yeah, I don't. I don't have the article picked pulled up at the moment either. I just, uh, I, I read it yesterday and the day before. I read it twice, and I was like, all right, I think I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we admitted that we were powerless of our addiction and our lives have become unmanageable. That's the first one. Second one is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So. Here's the very first mention of a power greater than yourself. And this is kind of one of those things that trips up a lot of people. You know, especially those, you know, you're from the South, I'm from the South. Like, a lot of us come in with this misconception in our head that, you know, there's that gotcha God waiting around the corner and somebody's going to knock us over the head with a Bible and, you know, should have done better or whatever the case may be, but... What's being referred to here, when we talk about a power greater than yourself, it could be the group of people sitting in front of you who have found freedom from addiction, who have found a new way to live and, and, and found a way through that. And that's exactly what I use. That was my very first conception of a power that was greater than myself, you know, was this group of people who... I uh, I had this when when I was reading that and and it, and you brought that and you brought that up. The first thing I thought of was, I I I'm an agnostic. My wife is an atheist. She used to be a militant atheist, and one of the things I would always tell her was, don't discourage people from utilizing religion and the Bible and and the and the utility. Of, of Christianity 
no matter if you believe it or not, don't criticize people for that and don't try to dissuade them from using that because there's a lot of great wisdom there to be used. Yeah, and that's absolutely. why that's why I never like fully embraced atheism is because I was always like, there's a lot there I've learned, you know, right. through through the years. Whether whether I think it's you know the word of God or whatever I think it is, there's a lot of wisdom to be utilized. So whenever I whenever I was reading that, I was I was thinking of me telling her that, and I was thinking, you know, when you're an addict, and you know, I mean, you, like you said, smoking grains of rice. I mean, you had. Um, Hunter Biden talking about smoking Parmesan cheese, you know, out of the carpet. And when you're going through that, you're dealing with something that's greater than yourself, at least in your, at least in your life at that point in time. So you need something bigger than just your willpower to overcome it. You already know, like you said, by the time you enter that door, you already know, I, I'm hope I'm helpless to this, to this cause. I can't do that alone. So you're already looking for a power greater than the power you're fighting, you know? So it's yeah. got to be greater than yourself. You they, know? they call it being beyond human aid, you know, and, and, and that when it comes to 12-step fellowships, there's spiritual, not religious programs. And they kind of like, you know, um, come in on what you said. Here's how it was explained to me. Religion is the driver's manual. Spirituality is driving the car, right? So it doesn't matter what religion you came from, whatever. It's, it's practicing these principles and putting in the work. And whether you're agnostic, whether you're a hardcore atheist, you have a space in the recovery community, and there's other people that are exactly like you. The beauty of it is, is that whether you call your God Jesus or Buddha or whatever the case may be, it never comes into play in a meeting. At no point in time. Um, but we can learn from, from a great many things. I'll tell you, you know, and I, and I made a post about it earlier on, on Twitter or tweet. Talking about having like a thousand pinholes in my arm. Bleeding all over the floor. I had a needle in my hand. I couldn't find a vein. And on the other side of that bathroom door, my entire world was falling apart. Everything I knew was crashing down around me and I couldn't focus on anything except for how in the hell am I going to take the shot after the one I'm holding in my hand. That's powerlessness. So when you talk about needing something bigger than that thing, you know, that could come in a lot of different forms. And for a lot of people, it's, it's that meeting. It's that person who's like, you know what? I identify with what you're saying and I found a way through you know, and that's what we needed. Um, third step is we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. That's a little bit more on the nose. <laughs> and we're bringing up the God thing now. That turns a lot of people off, you know. Um, but for those who are really desperate and they get a hold of somebody. Now, you'll hear people who are in recovery talk about a sponsor. And what a sponsor is, it's just somebody who's worked these steps before. And has a basic understanding of how the program works. And they're more or less a mentor, a confidant, a point of accountability, if you will. And if you get a sponsor and you talk to them about your reservation or your hesitancy to talk about the God thing, if you have a hesitancy, 
They'll explain to you exactly like I did in the second step, which is you can rely on the group. You know, your prayers can be whenever you share with your sponsor or the group. It doesn't matter. Like, there's many ways to work this program. But in making a decision to turn my will and life over, I'm not, not actually doing anything just quite yet. I'm just acknowledging that, you know what? It looks like it could work for you. It looks like it did work for you. It might be able to work for me. And so now I'm taking that next step to work through this process with you. Um, <clears throat> am I going too slow? Do I need to speed this up a little bit? I don't want to bore your audience. No, no, man. Um, I, you, you, uh, you know, going back to what I was saying a while ago about how this is bigger than you. One of the one of the things that popped in my head, Machine Head. I don't know. Do you listen to metal at all? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Machine Head had a song called "I'm Your God Now," and it was about addiction. Yeah, I see, man. Like that. Yeah. That's on the nose. Yeah. You know, that's on the nose because, like, <clears throat> I can't tell you the point that it happened. I started out as a weekend warrior. I started out having fun, and it was a lot of fun until it wasn't. And I can't pinpoint that, you know. But I could tell you that what happened, what, what started out as a hobby became a career. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And that yeah, career uh, became a prison. There's a, there's a, there's a lyric. I think it's in the song ghost along the Mississippi by down. And he said, uh, he said, how did he say it? It was started off as a, what started off as a hobby became 10 or 12 or more. Or more and more and more and more and more, and he's talking about because Phil Anselmo, who was the lead singer of Pantera, is the lead singer of Down. He was he had a heroin addiction for a long time, and Ghosts Along the Mississippi is about that. And I mean, and yeah, and he write he's written a lot of songs about that. I'll send you I'll send you some of the songs uh, here in a little bit. He's yeah, got he's got a great, really kind of bluesy soulful song called learn from this mistake oh man it's just it's powerful you know there's, there's something about i love music and i especially love music of people who you can tell they've been there and they've yeah. done that you know mm -hmm. i dig stuff like that there's this guy uh he goes by pat the bunny and he's got this song and he's like he says i want something more than apology to say when i look the world in the eye Dude, that there's something about that that resonates so big with me. It's just like the guilt, the shame. Like when we come into the rooms, we're not coming in as somebody who, oh, we slipped up one time. Now maybe you got a nudge from a judge and that's the case. I don't know. But I know for me, I came crawling in. I had nothing. Nothing. I couldn't even come. Mama didn't even invite me over for Christmas anymore, man. Like it was over for me, you know? Yeah. So... I have, I have this animalistic nature about me and I don't know, man, there's just, there's something to having people who understand that and whether it's a song, whether it's a poem or a story, but just being able to resonate with that, man, it still messes me up. I love stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, anyway, roll, roll through these steps, man. I'm sorry. Okay. You're good. You're good. Okay, so I'm going to try to go a little bit quicker. Okay, so four is you make a searching and fearless moral inventory. What that means is 
you, whether you know it or not, you have a lot of resentments when you come in. You got a lot of stuff that you've done to other people and they've done to you. And what we do is we put this shit on paper. We write it down, you know, and, and writing it down, we go to step five. Step five is we admit it to God, to ourselves, to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. That means you take your list you made in four, you show it in five, and you have some feedback, okay? This helps you understand that a lot of the things that were driving you wasn't the drugs. It was never the substances themselves. It was the underlying shit. The fact that you did not have the coping mechanisms to deal with life. You know, that's that kind of like aha moment for a lot of people. Now, six, seven, eight, and nine, you're pretty much saying, you're, you're making an acknowledgement, you know, to your sponsor, but then you're also asking God to help. In writing that list out in eight and nine, you're, and it, this is what a lot of newcomers do. They'll come in and they'll want to, they'll look at eight and nine, which says, you know, we made a list of all persons we'd harm, became willing to make amends to them all. Nine is we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. They see that and they think, oh man, I can just go out and apologize to people. Man, not knowing that we spent years and years and years saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, time and again. When I came in the rooms, man, one of the first things I did after I saw that step, I called up a, an old dealer of mine. I kicked in his door, you know, I kicked in his door and I was like, hey, man, I'm sorry I did that. He's like, man, you're a fucking asshole. Don't ever call me again. You know, and so the, the reason that it didn't work out the way that I thought that it would. But my sponsor was like, I didn't tell you to do that. He's like, you know, take a step back. You know, this is what this is how we do it. We work these steps in order. And I, I came to find it out that working a ninth step didn't mean that I needed to cop to things that I didn't get caught for. It didn't mean that I need to go up and reopen old wounds. It just means that I need to start working on living amends where they're applicable and then also paying back people that I owed if I owed them. Now, that doesn't mean if I had taken a front from a dope dealer that I'll go and pay them back because how he described it to me is like, Getting clean and trying to pay back a dope dealer is like going to a whorehouse and ordering a ham sandwich. He said, you don't do that. <laughs> you leave that shit alone. Yeah. Um, so that's one through nine. Ten is you continue to take a personal inventory, and that's just a miniature step four. We talked about the inventory. Eleven is prayer meditation. And the most important step of them all, in my opinion, is number twelve, and that means... And number 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we practice these principles all our affairs and carry the message to the still-suffering addict. That means that my job now is to show other people how this thing works. And that's how the recovery community continues to go forward. And that's a very condensed... I could spend hours upon hours talking about each and every single one of these steps. But in a nutshell, that's what it is. And that's how it works. Right. There's one through twelve. Okay, and and so when when you when you took on this project to write this, because this was not a short article, I, I imagine with your schedule, it took you quite a while to really verbalize this. What was your what did you think your goal in mind was? Were, were you trying to 
put the average person in the mind of an addict or into the life of, re- of recovery? How did you want people to respond to this? This was, when I first got introduced to libertarianism, I, I went about it the same way most people do. Um, started joining Facebook groups and, you know, this and that and dabbling. And I, when I was very brand new, someone asked a question in one of these groups, in a libertarian society, what happens to the drug addicts? And somebody said Darwinism. And I was so offended by that. I didn't voice it, you know, but I just, I was like a gut shot, you know. And it dawned on me that not a lot of people in the libertarian community realize that the 12-step recovery fellowship is the free market solution to drug addiction. It isn't connected to the state. They don't take any taxpayer dollars at all. Zero funding from anybody but themselves. And they are organic in nature. There's, I mean, it is peak charity. It is peak volunteerism. It is peak libertarianism. You know, here's a program that is teaching people who have stole and done bad things, you know, to, to make ends meet or whatever, to, to use, to take personal accountability, to understand that they have agency, and to do well for themselves, to not rely on other people, to become a productive member of society. So that was kind of like my mindset is like, how do I really lay out the case for the 12-step recovery process and display it to the Liberty community? Like, and that, that was kind of the goal of it. Okay. Yeah. And I thought you did a, a good job on that um, in, in the beginning uh, of the, of the article. Like I really, I could see where you were going with it. You also, I think, there, there are libertarians, and I don't consider myself a libertarian, though I work with the Institute and uh, with Scott and Pete and all those guys, and I love those guys, you know. I mean, when I'm talking to them, I'll call myself a libertarian because they know what I mean, right? But when I'm talking to old Normie on, on Twitter, I don't call myself a libertarian. I'll let, if, yeah, I mean, if they call me that, I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm not a libertarian. I'm an agorist, you know, but, you know, <laughs> at the same time, I, I just, I just don't because of, of what it insinuates in so many ways. Most people that you run into on these groups are new, young libertarians. And, that, and that's where, it, and, you know, I might, you know, I might have run across that comment, see somebody say that, and kind of chuckle and be like, well, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to poke at you, at people. He's trying to, you know, be, be an edge lord or whatever and just be like, oh, yeah, like, that's who this guy is, right? Right. Yet, there is a certain amount of truth to it. You know what I'm saying? And whereas the 12 step program ab- absolutely could, and probably would exist in a libertarian society. There's no reason it wouldn't. We all know the stories of the people that had no desire to get clean or had no desire to stay clean. Okay. I have relatives, for instance, that are, are, are like that. They clean up detox. They're clean for a year six months, a year, two years, and then they're right back in it. Mm-hmm. 
he destroyed their entire lives, every relationship they've had, you know, and it's so whenever I hear somebody say Darwinism, I think they're probably talking about those people, you know, those people that you would have to violently coerce to get them to stay clean forever, you know, right. and we're, we're just not into that. So I think if I could be a little nuanced, there's place in a libertarian society for both perspectives. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> you know? I guess so. I, 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 I'm not under any kind of delusion that if we end the war on drugs that, you know, deaths will stop happening. They're going to happen, man. I mean, it's just, people have been getting messed up at least on opiates since 5,000 BC. I mean, this goes back throughout all recorded human history, you know? So, that funny little thing in between an addict's ears, you know, it's not going to stop whether you put them in a padded cell or you let them run free on the streets, you know. You simply cannot coerce the bottom that is needed in order to bring about that psychic change to seek recovery. I hate it. I wish I could have a magic wand, but we couldn't. I don't think that there's ever a time when all of those people will be killed off because they yeah. like continues to happen. I mean, when people get born, you know, there's a million and one different reasons why somebody becomes an addict. You know, you, you can't just say there is no one poster child case. Well, this avoid this and you can avoid addiction. That's just impossible. I would, I would, I would suggest or encourage you to look into Portugal, like very heavily and how they've handled things, and how the how the addiction rate has actually decreased with the decriminalization, because you're destigmatizing. So you're making it a medical condition. You're making it, you know, the uh, uh, a way that that people can seek help openly. Right. And I think you said you were talking about this some in the article about you don't have that ability here. You you if your oh. buddies. If your buddy's ODing on the floor and y'all are all messed up, you don't want to call nine one one because they're going to see the cops and arrest everybody. Right. So you you make a you make a trade off your buddy's life for your freedom, right. you know. And I mean, I read that as, whoa, this guy's been in this situation, you know. Like that's how I read it. Now I, I can't speak for you, but I, <laughs> I mean, you're you're hitting on the nose. Yeah, I have. You know, um, I. I I don't want to go into it, but yes, I have. Yes, that's fine. That's fine. Um, uh, but but where, where I was going to go with all this was this destigmatizes it to a point, as you pointed out in the article, you can call 911 and the ambulance will be sent. No yeah. one's going to be forced to go into jail. You're not, you're not dealing with a criminal record for the rest of your life right. in this situation. Yeah. So, and I've, I've seen god-awful shit you know i've i've walked in to shooting galleries and there's somebody you know flopping on the floor and it's like what the call 911 you're like are you crazy like you know how much dope we have here you know and they'll drag them off to the bathroom and put cold water on thank god they pop back up you know like they were fine but there's a there's a lot of cases where that that doesn't happen you know where you you hear stories out not all the time but you do hear frequent stories about people being kicked out of a car in front of an er and just left there you know, and what? Now, here's here's the other side of it. 
I care deeply, deeply, deeply about addicts who need help and want help having the mechanisms available to them. Absolutely. I am not okay with forcing the guy across town who's always been straight edge, never even smoked a joint, paying, forcibly paying for the guy, you know, the junkie across town to get treatment that doesn't even want it. What? I think public perception has to change in order to get that stigma. And I don't know what comes first. It's the chicken or the egg, you know, thing. You know, what? which came first? Is it, is it the law that changed or is it the public perception that changed first? You know, I, I need to look more into Portugal on that and see what kind of approval rating there was for the change in the law at the time and as opposed to what there is now. But, yeah, man, it's something to think about for sure, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's uh, let's let's get into you a little bit. So, you're in your you're in your twenties, thirties, thirties. Okay. Yep. Yeah. You well, know, you look good for thirty. Thank you. Yeah. You Thank know. you. I expected it. The, the drugs I, pickled me, man. I, I <laughs> is that what happened? Because I expected you look. I I expected a thirty year old former addict to look more like me. <laughs> old and beat up. <laughs> I think they, they, they pickled me, man. Maybe it's the lighting <laughs> in the room. Who knows? Okay, so so you're in your thirties. When did you uh when did you start doing drugs? So much of the focus of my podcast is to point out abuses of power and how bad things have gotten and the direction in which we're heading as a society. And it can be a real black pill. I've partnered up with Richard Grove to offer my listeners an opportunity to sign up to his autonomy course. Uh, the autonomy course is designed for people looking for solutions, people that want to shape their own future, people that are not willing to be at the behest of large corporations or the United States government or the banking system. The autonomy course is designed for those of you who wish to have complete control of the reins of your life, who are looking to be successful, that to thrive and not just survive, to provide for your family by utilizing your existing skills and learning how to market and sell those skills in order to be your own boss or learn new skills in order to leverage that into a new career opportunity. So if there's a job out there you've been trying to get or you've been wishing you could get, but you just don't have the skills for it, the autonomy course is the place for you to start, to learn how to land that position, to learn how to market yourself better, to gain confidence, and to be surrounded by a community of like-minded people that will encourage you and help you along the way. So. Use my affiliate links and go check out the autonomy course. It could be right for you. Did we break up? I started. Oh, okay. The first thing I ever did was, I, yeah, I think we just got a little bit of a lag going. But, yeah, uh, a little bit. First thing I ever did was uh, weed. I was like 13, 14, uh, but I was prescribed at the age of 15 uh, Ritalin and Dexedrine. 
You there? Yeah, I, I can hear you. It's it's a little. There was a little breakup, but it you wasn't bad. Me? I was checking my internet connection. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right, right on. Um, but um, so the first thing I ever did was weed. That was like thirteen, fourteen. Soon after, I was prescribed. This was like during the height of the Johnny B. Good medications. You know, uh, Adderall, Ritalin, Vyvanse. You know, all those. And they put me on one called Dexedrine. And holy shit, like that was, that was something, you know, um, it's pretty much straight up meth. I mean, it's, it's an amphetamine salt, but it is the daddy of amphetamine salts. Like it'll put Adderall to shame. Um, so like that was kind of like my real first taste on like, oh shit, I could take an external substance to fix an internal problem. You know, and, and what and what what would what did they put you on this for? Um, I I just couldn't get along with people at school. I, I didn't fit in well. I, I got into it with the teachers. I was constantly getting in trouble. You mm. know, it was just it was just a troubled child, is what they called me. You know? Yeah, I had a friend like that, and they put him on lithium. I'm thankful they didn't do that because yeah. my God, you know. Well, he never took them. He just sold them. <laughs> there's an entrepreneur right there yeah. there you go <laughs> last, I, last I heard he was living in a like in a condo on, on a beach somewhere I yeah. bet man fortune yeah. 500 mentality right yeah. there he sold them I bought them I end up driving a truck he fucking goes isn't that something <laughs> shit yeah man. But yeah, so like that, that was kind of like, you know, early on I got a taste for, uh, for getting fucked up pretty much, man. And when I turned 18, I hit the streets and then I did whatever, whenever, however, I think everything really changed for the worst whenever I, uh, discovered that whenever I could put these substances in a needle, you know, I could go from where I'm at to where I want to be in a nanosecond. And I really, really like that, you know. Um, and when it, when it boils down to it, people ask me, you know, what's your drug of choice? And it sounds cliche and lame, but man, it's more, it's yeah. always been more that Alice in Chains you know, song, what's more, your, whatever that Alice in Chains song, what's your drug of choice? Well, what have you got? I don't go broke, but I do it a lot. You know, like whatever, like, just give it to me. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, I don't, in, um, in Oklahoma, which you grew up there, right? Yep. So y'all were, y'all probably saw a lot of meth. Oh God, yeah. Yeah, that's what, that's what Louisiana, Texas, we dealt with a lot of meth too. I never did it, but, um. That does it seems that meth comes very easily and very cheap, and so it becomes just abundantly available, and that's part of why so many people get addicted to meth. Would there have been? I don't know if there's a, a way of saying it. Would it have been different for you, let's say, had a drug like marijuana been legal and, and easy 
to obtain or what what would have would anything have curbed your your taste for the more addictive substances? I don't think anything now because I, I I always had a steady supply of weed, you know, like that was never never a thing. Um, I was always more inclined to go fast, you know what I mean? Like I like that go fast, the uppers, you know. Um, first time I did coke, I, I I got a quarter paper, and the next day I blew a whole paycheck on an eight ball, you know, like it was just. Like, I really like that. Um, when I first got into the dope game, though, like, meth was still relatively expensive. I, I Relative. Uh, you know, they, the guy I was getting it from early on, it was cent for cent, meaning that, like, you know, you get a gram, you're paying $100, you know. Um, nowadays, out here, from my understanding... You can get a whole eight ball of meth for like 20 bucks. Um, I think that's a testament to the bullshit they're putting in it nowadays. Not that it was ever, you know, pure at any point in time. Yeah, but... um, Put some chili pee in that bitch. (laughs) Chili pee, there you go. The, um, you know, but I also hear, you know, about like people getting blurry vision. You know, from the methods around nowadays, and, and the reason that's happening is because they're actually suffering from nickel poisoning from the gun blowing they're putting in this in this shit. So, uh, I, I don't know, man. I think that uh, regardless of availability or price, it was just that thing, you know? It was that thing. It was that... A lot of people look at... And like I said in the article, you know, people look at the, these things as substances... My mentality was they were actually solutions. Right. You know, um, it was the way to escape reality. You know, and and the more I could get out of myself and put the rest of the world on pause, the more I'm into that. And you know, meth absolutely provided that. Right. Know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of people don't understand when it comes to addiction. It is that escape that you're looking for and you know that escape is i guess different for every person um you know i i would say whenever i was at my worst point i was drinking a lot and i do drink a lot i ain't gonna say i don't but i don't drink like i used to i used to come home every night i drink a 20 case of beer like just sit back and drink 20 30 beers and then go to bed and because I, I did not want, I was in a really bad marriage. I didn't want to deal with it, you know? And right. so it was the, it was the only thing that I could, you know, the way I was coping with it. It's not the only thing, but it was the way I was coping with it, you right. know? And it was getting out of that relationship, you know, gave me the opportunity to examine and reflect and, and do what I had to do to, clean myself up and you know make sure i wasn't getting that out of control anymore you so know? did you have to make a was that like a conscious decision you had to make or was there a winning off process like what did that look like for you yeah i wasn't i, I wouldn't get i would i was never one that would get the shakes or anything like that i i wasn't that bad it was all mental for me okay. it was all mental and, and emotional all i right. was trying to escape emotionally and mentally away from this 
situation that was so toxic and chaotic that I did not want any part of. And yet I did, couldn't justify in my own mind leaving because I had children. And so I was, I was fighting this battle constantly over how I was going to handle this situation. And it manifested itself in me getting home and getting shit-faced every night. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. That, that, that's true for a lot of us, man. Like, I, I, I hear a, a lot of people, and I'm not trying to lump you in with us junkies. I hope you don't think that, Tommy. Uh, but what I'm saying is, is a lot of the people who come into uh, meetings, they all talk about a couple of things, and one of them that continues to crop up is always feeling out of place. Always feeling like they never fit in quite where they stood. And a lot of that could be something up to our environments, you know, being in a bad relationship, being in an unhealthy household. Like, you know, that could come in a lot of different forms. But um, and I, I don't know how you I don't know how you fix that. Right. I don't know how you get ahead of that. Like. Beyond, you know, really putting healthy, solid households as a desirable trait in our society, you know. That's about the only way. But here's the other thing. Tommy's like, there's a lot of people who get addicted and they came from great households. They, yeah. they had a wonderful childhood. Like, you know, there, there's no telling. But Well, and know, sometimes, man. I mean, I've known guys, some of the smartest people I've ever known were addicts. And the reason was they were bored. Life was boring. Yeah. It was easy for them. Right. It offered no challenges. You know, everybody, they looked around and everybody was stupider than they were. Right. You know, like, you know, it's a, it's a miracle. Like somebody like a Michael Malice is as, as brilliant as he is. Didn't, that didn't happen to him. Right. You know, he found another addiction though, <clears throat> which, which is, you know, his reading and all, all that culture that he's into and this, that and the other, but you got to fill that gap with something. You have to make your life interesting in some way right and calm those monsters within your head you know whatever it is you have to find a way to do it some people find different ways to do it but addiction you know to to alcohol or drugs is, is a very easy as you say solution to that problem yeah and it's very accessible for from a very early age Oh, absolutely. You know, they try to make it sound like like people that are addicts wake up one day and decide, I want to be an addict. You know, and it's a process that, that takes years. Yeah. And, you know, I get frustrated whenever I know somebody that has potential and they clean up. And they start doing good, and then they fall right back into it. To me, I find that really extremely frustrating. Because I'm like, you're better than this. You can do better. Like, you have that ability. You showed us for six months. You showed us for a year. You showed yourself. You proved to yourself that you're worth more than that life. But they keep getting sucked back in. Do you, do you have any idea how that continues to occur to some people? There's a lot of things. Um, 
one one of the main reasons is we addicts had this tendency to romanticize what it was like, right? <clears throat> when we clean up, we have a very profound recollection of the, the, the darkness that we felt and the reason we wanted to get clean. But the longer we stay clean, it's almost like we romanticize how good it was and forget how bad it was. And another, like, so I'm, I'm of the garden variety addict that, like, I cannot do anything. I can't drink. I can't smoke a joint. Like, tr I have tried every which way but loose to, you know, use a mood or mind-altering substance and not fuck my life up. And I've proven to myself that that's impossible. So the trap that I can easily fall into being of that variety is hanging around people who are able that good drink, you know, or, or, you know, have a beer and take a shot. And that's, that's the only shot they're going to do for the night. Or that's the only, they're only going to drink two beers and that's it. And I'll think, well, shit, man, I, I just wasn't hanging around the right people and I'll get a beer. And before I know it, man, I'm like I'm buying Coke that night, you know, and we're off to the races. So it, it, it's a constant, Every single day process for me is kind of, and it's not a victim thing. I'm not a victim. It's not like, oh, woe is me, I'm an addict. No, it's just like, you know, hey, like I, I have to, it, it's almost like a dietary restriction almost, you know, like I just, there's a certain way that I need to live my life, remind myself of that daily and move forward. Um, one of the things that helps me prevent myself from falling into that forgetfulness is doing the work that I do with the podcast and writing about recovery and talking to other people about recovery. It's keeping that idea that at the forefront of my mind, like, look, this is who you are. This is where you're at. And I've found comfort in that. But I've been that guy that you talked about. Like, I had seven and a half years clean a couple years ago, man. I, I got married and on my honeymoon, I got drunk. And I, did, I came back from the honeymoon a different person than I went. You want to talk about guilt, shame, and remorse? Holy shit, dude. I was a circuit speaker for Narcotics Anonymous. You know, established person and like having to come back and say, I fucked it up, dude. That sucked bad, you know. Um, but we dust ourselves off and we keep going, you know, and learn the lesson. That's the main thing is that you learn the lesson, you know. And so, um, yeah. When you, uh, you've been, how long have you been clean now? Uh, January 8th, 2020 is my clean day. January 8th, 2020? Yeah, okay. so a little over about 16 months now. Okay. And, uh, when you, when you, uh, relapsed, was it, was it a period of time or was it just that one time and you were just like, fuck? No, it was, I was off to the races, dude. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was four months. Really? Um, I can't, now I've been clean for seven and a half years. So like none of the connections that I had were around anymore. I didn't know how to get a hold of them. Um, but the, you know, I came back, I was drinking heavily Then I got, you know, I hang, hung around the casinos long enough. I found a, a plug. And got right back into where I was at, dude. And before I knew it, like, it was just dark. 
it, it yeah. got dark all over again. But, yeah. you know, thankfully I'd made some relationships with people who, you know, refused to give up on me. You know, they wouldn't beat me over the head or make me feel bad. They would just call me to talk, you know, yeah. and I would answer, you know, because I didn't want anybody to worry. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and your marriage survived? It did. I Let me tell you, man, I, I married a warrior. <laughs> she, this woman is tough as nails. She scares me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of one of the things that kind of, you know, mix me up is because I, I've always been one to gravitate towards toxic relationships. And uh, my wife is actually not toxic. She's yeah. a very healthy, well-adjusted woman. And uh, through compassion and, and, and patience, you know, she's kind of showed me like, hey, look, this is how this works. We're honest with each other. I'm not going to give up on you. When we said I do, that was for life. That wasn't just in that moment. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah. yeah. Real grateful. Yeah, no doubt. That's that's good. I think, as you said, as we were talking earlier, you need something bigger than the addiction. And that that love, that compassion can really root you. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I tried, whenever I was, whenever I left my last wife, not my last wife, I'm married again to a much better, more, more sensible person. <laughs> we won't get into all that. <laughs> but, uh, that's awesome. But, oh, she's, my, my wife's a nut job. She, look, she grew up in South Africa. She was, she's walking down the streets and got mugged, and she turned around and mugged her mugger. She ain't playing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't fuck That's with this awesome, woman. Man. I do not fuck no. with this woman. She gets mad at me, I walk away. I'm like, I, I don't want no part yeah, of this shit. Yeah. yeah, she's she's from hoods that we've never even heard of. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's a different world over there. Bro. Yeah, yeah, that's a different world. Yeah, no shit, man. I, you know, I've lived in I lived in Houston. I, I've been to almost every major city in the United States. I went to South Africa. I was there for two weeks. I had I pulled my knife three times in South Africa. Holy never shit. had to pull my knife once in America. Never once. God, dude. Yeah. That. Yeah. Fuck it was that. it was crazy, but it's beautiful. It's gorgeous over there. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So just take a knife. That's tra- the only trade-offs. Trade offs. <laughs> trade. I brought it. I, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. So, but whatever. Hey man. Figure I have it. I might as well carry it. You can't <laughs> so, you can't yeah. If I would have had a gun, I would have pulled it. You know, in some of the situations. <laughs> but, but um, yeah. So. Getting out, I'm, I, I try to reflect on that that period of getting out of that relationship, getting getting out of that toxic relationship. And sometimes I'm like, I, it just feels like a completely different person. It was so long ago for me that it's like I don't even remember like what it felt like really to be there. You know, yeah. I can I can verbalize it. I can tell you what was going on, but. To actually like, like put myself in that position again, I can't do that. I, I don't. I don't even know how I would even go about that. And that's when I started driving over the road. 
and because uh, I had always driven locally prior. Well, I had a semi-local job at the time. I would go out of town once a week, which wasn't really that bad. But um, but I went over the road, and all I knew to do because I always growing up, I always buried myself in music and in poetry to to deal with things that were happening, which was a lot of silence, a lot of time alone. And I, I found myself back writing short stories, writing poetry and driving 11 hours a day, complete and total silence, not talking to people for weeks at a time, just driving in complete silence. And I eventually met my wife over uh, over Facebook during this period, but it was never intended to be a relationship. It was just somebody she had been through some really hard relationships. I had been through a really hard relationship. It was just somebody I could bullshit with and laugh with and kind of relate to. And it just kind of evolved naturally. But that being said, I could never, I, I don't think I could figure out that that mentality that I was in where I would want to get drunk every night. You know, like there are nights where I want to have like two beers, three beers after work and be like, all right, I'm fucking done. Or I get home after a week of being on the road and my wife and I just sit around and we drink a case of beer and just bullshit all weekend. You know, that's all we do. She buys herself a case and I buy myself a case and we sit outside by the chickens and we drink beer and we laugh and joke and just have a good time being together, you know, but to put myself back in that situation where I'm trying to kill something with, you know, the, the alcohol that just doesn't resonate with my mindset anymore. Right. And so what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to figure out, like in this conversation is that what what that difference is is there and you don't have to get into any details that's not what i'm asking obviously is there something within you that lingers that you're still trying to figure out and trying to to solve a problem that you've never been able to solve so i i put it like this a good day in recovery feels like I'm finally becoming a version of myself I always wanted to be. A bad day in recovery feels like I'm running away from a version of myself I was always meant to be. And that's kind of that thing. It, it, it's shifting perspective. It depends on the day. Yeah. You know, you're talking about driving in silence. That was you processing the emotions, processing the situation. In a healthy way. You know, that's how you're supposed to do it. Me, on the other hand, you know, my mentality is, oh, shit, I don't like this feeling. I have to change it right now. Um, this is my second marriage. My first marriage, thank God, Narcotics Anonymous was around at the time because, like, dude, I was going to detoxes and rehabs, like, every single night of the week, like, talking to people, working with other addicts, 
speaking at meetings. Like, I plugged in. I got out of myself. I had to. But that was a shining symbol, and in which I did good things with that time. You know, I didn't go out and use, but it was another version of me running away, mm -hmm. right? Instead of processing and working through it. So <clears throat> it's a instant gratification. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I don't like how I feel right now. Let me change it. Hit that oh shit button. You know. So so do you think that is the delayed gratification has been something over the years that has been going away, like in, in culture in general. So do you think that the culture is, is conditioning people to be addicts more so today than it was previously? I'm really glad you asked this because this is something I, I, I find myself thinking about quite a bit. And I actually do. I do think... Maybe not by design, but it is absolutely a circumstance or, you know, that, that is the cause. This is the effect, right? right? This is exactly what's happening right now with um, my camera moves. Sorry about that. Yeah, but, that's, uh, all, that's cool. I thought, I thought but, uh, it was pretty cool. I was like, whoa. Oh, shit. There's an uh, earthquake in Oklahoma City again. Yeah, we just, you know, I just set up this little, my podcast studio. It's all, I got like loose wires and shit everywhere. Um Dude, I have to I have to hook up for every podcast. Yeah. You should say, yeah, I have a mixer between my feet right now, so it doesn't get too hot being on my dash. I got I got my mic in my hand. I got my laptop sitting on my lap, so the vent can blow on it and keep it cool. Like I, I, see, I plug it. It takes me ten minutes to set up. I know exactly awesome. how long. <laughs> That's awesome. Man. So if I stop, uh, I stop my truck fifteen minutes before I have an appointment. I set up. I send the Zoom link, and I just wait. I'm like, all yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay so here's here's an example how instant gratification has become something so commonplace in our society let's look at amazon most people have a prime membership okay you'll look at something and you'll see the the same product from two different suppliers one supplier isn't prime let's say it's 14 dollars for a widget well that 14 dollars and free shipping it will take next week until you get your widget. But the prime one is $17 and it'll be available for you tomorrow. I guarantee you that prime one gets ran, worn out. People buy that prime one. They want it tomorrow. They want it now, you know? And you look at our society, everything's at the speed of light. I mean, we're, we're connected more than ever before. So for that to bleed over into some of our other decisions in life, it's not hard to see where addictive personalities can kind of like run rampant with instant gratification. Um, well, I don't, I, I'm sorry. Um, I don't know if you're looking at addictive personalities running rampant or if you're looking at a situation of, of nurture, right? So people are being taught to be addicted to that that instant dopamine hit that you're being trained yeah. to be an addict. Yeah, that's true. Well, especially with like social media being what yeah. it is, you know, Hey, we all like getting likes on our tweets. We all like, you know, people retweeting our stuff or commenting or whatever, getting a new follower. Like that's why I like being that in, in our group because I'm I finally, I'm, I'm finally getting likes. 
I'm like, hey, look, somebody likes me. Same here, man. I'm like, oh, shit. I'm a yeah. big deal, man. Uh, yeah. Six, deal. six likes, I'm going viral. <laughs> remember that uh, Remember that old commercial? 100 likes on my selfie. <laughs> yeah. Googling how to deal with fame because I got 10 likes on a, on a tweet. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think it's actually, you know, it, and you know, how do we deal with that, though? Like, how do we how do we approach that? Like, you would have to regress. Tech, technology would have to go back, you know, in order for us to to reverse the effects of that. I think it's a, I think it puts a, a bigger and broader responsibility on parents to explain to their children the difference between reality and this conceptual reality that they're witnessing online. Yeah. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, as as social media has become more and more viable and more and more almost necessary in, in life in a lot of ways, the it seems like parenting is not as hands-on. You can, as technology has progressed, you can see that that you have, they, they used to call the, the television back in the day, I don't know if you ever heard this, but they would call it the electronic babysitter. Because you could just sit your kid in front of it, let them watch Barney for the next hour, and you could go clean the house and do what you needed to do. Right. And so you didn't have to be so hands-on. And that that free time, that technology has allowed parents to do the things that they need to do or want to do or, you know, their hobbies or their, their desires and that it is, it is addicted. It has gotten the parents addicted to having this electronic babysitter that's always there for their child. And they're not teaching their child that this dopamine hit that they're experiencing isn't reality this isn't real this is this is some virtual world that you're experiencing and that reality happens off screen not on screen yeah i mean and they've even done they've even done studies of the the human mind while watching movies and you you your mind is reacting exactly the same way as it does whenever you're interacting in life. Wow. Yeah. So you have to be very careful about that distorted reality. I, you know, this is kind of one of the things that I, I need to do a little bit better at is that sometimes I can find myself shifting into a position where instead of looking at life experiences as life experiences, I'll look at it as social media updates, right? Like, oh, I'm at this beautiful mountain range. Like, instead of appreciating it, you know, I'm pulling out my phone, taking a picture, you know, to post it on social media. I don't like that about me, you know. And say it might be about time for me to take a little bit of hiatus, you know, and just post updates on like the the podcast, but kind of take a step back from wanting to put every little thing out there. You know what I mean? Um, but it's hard. It's tough, man. You want to, you want that high light rail plane, just like everybody else. You know, you want to show off what's going on in your world, make yourself seem more interesting than you actually are. At least for me, you know, I mean, that was one of the, 
<laughs> that was one of the main things that kept me out there for so long and not wanting to come into recovery is because I was so afraid of being bored. I was afraid of having a mundane life. You know, and I, I, I think maybe I still kind of uh, worry about that on occasion, you know. Maybe I try to In, front Insignificant. That's the word. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, insignificant. You, you want somebody to make you feel like you belong and like you're important, like you're special. Yeah. But you have yourself that wonderful wife. I do. And you can do, like, you notice, I don't know if you've noticed, but I disappear a lot from, from Twitter for sometimes days. You know, I'll, I'll be tweeting and then I'll get home. And I don't, I don't really give a shit about my fucking phone. My wife gets mad at me because when I'm home, I'll even leave my phone at home when I go to the store. She gets mad. She's like, what is that happens? What if I need something? <laughs> Sorry. Like the last thing on my mind, whenever I'm home with my wife is that, that phone. I, I just don't care about it. Right. You know, or yeah, sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll just be in a mood and I'll just turn everything off. I'll turn all the podcasts off, all the audiobooks off. I'll turn Twitter off. I'll put my phone down, and I just, you know, I'm just going to drive. I'm just going to chill, you know? Right. And so I, I, I found myself not being as active on Twitter or Facebook or any of these other social media platforms as a lot of other people, and it's because I find them boring, right? You know what I find... I find interesting is going outside and tending to the chickens and playing with my dog and, and gardening and developing something with my wife. We're developing the, 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 the agriculture together, working on the house together, painting a room, whatever we're doing. And we're always, I, I think where a lot of people, and maybe, maybe this is something that you can utilize but I think what a lot of people, once they get married, <clears throat> forget to do is to build with their spouse. And this is why the divorce rate is so high. A lot of people look at marriage as the end in, in and of itself. But marriage isn't an end. It's a beginning. It's a beginning to building a life. So what is that life that you, not necessarily you, but you and your wife want together and my wife and I have sat down and talked about that. We've decided what we wanted. And so we consciously are working towards that. It's slower than we'd like, but we are consciously always talking about what the next step is and how to get to where we want to be. Because like even though things pop up in our lives and we get distracted, we get frustrated, we fight like any other married couple we have that foundation of this is where we're going and this is why we're doing this together. So all that other shit can be thrown by the wayside at the end of the day, because ultimately there's a goal in mind and we're both working together to reach the same destination. That's good stuff, man. I like that. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, Tommy. So I don't, everything I know about life, I, I learned from watching other people. You know what I mean? So like, Hearing about stuff like that, like that's just not something I, I, I knew growing up. You know, my, my parents fought like cats and dogs. Like they were in the 
terrible relationship. They shouldn't have stayed married for as long as they did. So, like, my conception, my idea of what a healthy relationship looks like has come from, you know, the examples that my wife has taught me, but also watching people like you, you know, successfully navigating this thing called life, you know, with a partner. So, thanks a lot for telling me about that, because that's a solid point, man. I, I fucked up bad two <laughs> times before this one, so don't... Hey, man, that's how we learn, right? <laughs> you know, I, you know, and my parents... You know, they have a great relationship. And I've always, like, looked at their relationship. I'm like, I want that. I want to be 60 years old and still pinching my wife on the ass and, and laughing and having a good time. Right. How do you do that? Right. That's what I want. And uh, the ultimately what I've discovered is that we're communicating, we're working together, and we have a, a set destination in mind, you know. And this came to me... <laughs> People are going to make fun of me for this. Actually, I'm not going to get into the detail of that. Uh, I, I'll tell you off. <laughs> I'll tell you off. <laughs> I used to be into listening to a lot of motivational speakers, and uh, there was there was one guy I ran across, and I would listen to him all the time. His name was Les Brown, and he was just entertaining. He was just great. He was just like, he was inspired and motivated, and, and it was just like, this makes me feel good. Like, yeah. hearing this message makes me feel good. So I played it for my, my first wife, and she was like, yeah, I like that. So we used to make a routine out of listening to him, and, and our relationship was really good. We were really close. And we had three kids together. And one day I was, we were, we were trying to figure out, we're like, I can't keep doing what I'm doing and, 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 and see that we're going to progress in, in a way that is going to leave us in a prosperous situation. I just don't, I don't foresee that as being a possibility. So I joined the military. Huge mistake. But we lost that connection while I was gone. And we ended up getting divorced, right? So, so what I drew from that was there was that, that commonality, that common goal, that common desire to have that motivation put in our lives and have those, those set desires in front of us. That commonality was really a strong bond. It was something that built, we had we could build upon, right? Yeah. So you can't build upon the argument you had last night. And if you do build upon that argument you had last night, it's only going to be bad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so though I failed the second marriage as well, when, whenever I got with Beatrix, I sat her down and I said, this is important to me and this is something we have to consciously focus on because this is important to me and i think this is this actually means something and i'm not sure what it means but i think it actually means something and so we consciously discuss that 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 foundation as being we're working towards something together and both of us i mean i get scatterbrained just like anybody else so does she but you always have that other person to anchor you and pull you back in and say, this is actually what we're doing here. So this is what we need to focus on. 
yeah, you fucked up. I, I forgive you. Let's, let's go on about our business, yeah. you know? And so it's a team effort there. It's funny you mentioned that, man. When I was, uh, when I relapsed and I mean, I was, Tommy, I was gone. Like, you know, I, I, I'm not the, uh, I don't do well with that. I don't make it a spectacle. Like I disappear and I get, my wife would send me that song. I can't remember the name of the song, and she's going to kill me for that whenever she listens to this, but I, the lyrics were, the house don't fall when the bones are good. You know, and she kept, she would send me that. She would say, you know, like, we, we have a solid foundation here. Just come home, you know, and that's still something that, like, that hits, it reverberates with me when you, when you talk about that, you know, that foundation being solid. Because it, it is, you know, we have a solid relationship, and, you know, no matter, you know, we just moved into a new house. We got this old house. We're trying to remodel it. I mean, there's stresses and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, we still have each other and we still we're working towards that same goal. But uh, I'm glad that you verbalized that because I can kind of run that through my head and focus on that a little bit more. But, uh, yeah, I just did song. <laughs> Wish I could remember the name of it. It's gonna kill me. Please don't kill him. We don't we love me. Drew. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, I think we've covered it quite a bit here, and we've gotten yeah. we've gotten pretty deep. Yeah, you wanna, we have, man. You want to? You want to? You have anything you want? You think we should cover before we get off here? Yeah, just one thing. All if right. you're listening to this. If you're listening to this and you're struggling with addiction and you're struggling with alcoholism and you've been looking for a sign to quit, this is it. You can absolutely make it through the next 24 hours. All you need to do is just focus on where you're standing and that's in today. Fuck yesterday and fuck tomorrow. They don't matter. If you need somebody to talk to, reach out to me. You can find me at clean underscore podcast or at Liberty Drew 84. Um, like Tommy said, I'm the host of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. There's quite a few stories of recovery on there. Find it. Listen to it. See if you can't find some identification in that. But you are worth it, and you can make it through this. And I believe in you. And just um, just in case somebody's listening that's not on Twitter, because as much as we think the whole world revolves around Twitter, <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, you, can, you can also email me, and I'll... I'll make sure to get you in touch with Drew. And uh, awesome. my email is tommysalmons at gmail.com um, or tommy at libertarianinstitute.org. Either one of those, I'll get I'll get the email. So, yeah, feel free to reach out. No one's judging you here. We uh, I think this was fairly vulnerable territory we, we tread into. And hopefully somebody hears this that needs to hear it, man. Absolutely. Plug everything you got to plug, Bubba. Uh, just, you know, I got a YouTube channel, Clean Libertarian Podcast. I think it's Clean Libertarian Podcast. Just look up Clean Libertarian Podcast. You'll find the YouTube. Damn it, I just started that like 10 episodes ago. I'm, I'm still struggling, man. I, I, I just, I make content. If people hear it, they hear it. If they don't, no big deal. I just, I'm glad to get people's story of recovery out there. Um, my wife does run a Facebook page for it. Uh, you can look for that. And... Like I said, I already dropped the handles on Twitter, so uh, yeah, you can hope you hope you find it and, and hear some something that you like, you know. All right, Drew. Well, let me stop this recording here, brother.
a slave All your good intentions Took you to your grave Your pride is how they killed you With the flag you wave just like a fool They promised you a mountain Gifted you a stone They demanded that you throw it Into your neighbor's home And then seize all that they worked for And give it to the throne Just like a tool well, As we all just stand in line And glorify new ways of being cruel Seems to me not something that they're teaching us in school <clears throat> They dumps down all around propaganda their pollution They set a cage up on the stage a facade for a solution They build a wall block them all from this mental institution It's insane These crimes done in our names Seems to me authority and tyranny Are both one and the same